What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of You Don't Know History. Uh, I'm your host, Mike McGinnis, and today I have the, the privilege of having uh, Dr. Bradley J. Sommer, uh, who was recently awarded his PhD from Carnegie Mellon and who specializes in the history of labor, race, and class in, in America, specifically in the Midwest. And today we're talking about a topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts, the Rust Belt. Uh, Brad, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am. I'm okay. I'm okay. Worked a late night. Uh, I'm, a, I'm glad you're here. Um, because I think this is an important thing to talk about. You know, um, when, when people think the Rust Belt, they just, re, you know, they, they get the pictures of like, uh, the, what, like the urban, urban mm -hmm. apocalypse photos, you know, where it's just the old mills that are all run down or they get like pictures of like Detroit. Uh, yeah. You know, and those abandoned sites. But there was the Rust Belt has a rich and beautiful history. Uh, and, and, you know, Brad and I are both from that area. Uh, you know, I'm from I'm a Northeast Ohio guy. Um, you know, Brad's, a, you know, he's in a, a, a certain Northeast Ohio city himself. Um, so let's, let's just go jump into this, man. What is the Rust Belt? <clears throat> so the Rust Belt has like a, a kind of clear definition, but it also really doesn't. So, I mean, depending on who you ask and who you consult <clears throat> geographically, because there's a couple of aspects to the Rust Belt. Geographically, it's generally considered to be a large swath of the country that like kind of starts in central, maybe eastern PA, West Virginia in the anthracite coal fields. Usually goes up now, if we're just talking about in the US, because there's an argument that the Rust Belt continues into parts of Canada, but different conversation. Usually goes up into Buffalo. And then more or less just kind of sweeps down through the Midwest, kind of following the lines of the lakes and kind of making this big, big sweep up. Uh, you will find, and I, I actually would argue that the Rust Belt does continue into parts of the South. Uh, people tend to forget that there are definitely parts of the South that were very, very heavily industrialized. Uh, Decatur in Georgia, more famously Birmingham and Alabama. Uh, but generally speaking, when people talk about the Rust Belt, they, they kind of tend to conflate it with parts of the east and most of the midwest yeah i mean that that's about what i found i mean I, i've heard some people argue it started in like western massachusetts uh <laughs> like you have to factor in the textile industry and things that yeah. were like fed from the natural re you know the the resources that were pulled out and and um, refined in the rust belt but um you know how like I, I think the big question is is like you know as we hit like the industrial revolution and things start progressing we're we're moving away from being an agrarian society where the economy is based on farming why did it center why did that industrialization center so much in, in what we do know as the rust belt a lot of the things that made expansion into the rust belt viable was resources and space so even though there's always been manufacturing in some of the bigger cities on the East Coast, and you alluded to the textile mills, those were always, those textile mills were usually in smaller communities. There were some in bigger communities, but generally they were in areas where there weren't a lot of people and there weren't a lot of constrictions on space. So when you look at a lot of the parts of the Rust Belt, whether we're talking about places like Buffalo and Pittsburgh, or if we're talking about places that are in the Midwest proper, one of the things that you had a lot of was space to expand. You know, you can't really put a steel mill in the middle of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. You know what I mean? There's no room yeah. for it. But you know what there is a lot of room for? You know, you know where there's a lot of room for it? In Homestead, PA, or in Steubenville, Ohio. You know, so space was one of the things that really made it viable. 
uh, and then with, with coming with space, not only just for the facility, but then once you have the facility, now you also do have space for people to you know work in your facility, whether it's a rail yard, a meat packing plan, an auto plan, a steel yard, whatever. Once you have the space for the place, now you also have space and you kind of create demand for a workforce. So you go to a place where there's already maybe a little bit of something, you know, Chicago did have some population and some settlement, Cleveland, you know, Toledo, Pittsburgh. But once you start building up in that area, now people start to flock there and then you can kind of expand out. And that's kind of how you get these companies with these big thumbprints in some of these cities. You know, you think of Detroit, you almost immediately associate Ford with it because Ford, GM, Chrysler were able to kind of like buy up a lot of the more valuable land in the area because there weren't as many people to compete with. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point. Like, I never really thought about it like that because uh, just the, the natural growth of cities, like you always <laughs> found, like now, you know, you see that the plants are situated like inside city limits uh, and you do forget that before the city grew, that was probably a few miles away, uh, you know, where it wasn't in the dead center in town. Um, but, you know, like you had mentioned, it, this these, you know, uh, fast growing areas like Chicago and Pittsburgh and Cleveland, um, you know, they started attracting a ton of workers. But, you know, what were some of the groups that made up those, um, you know, that, that, that population influx as, you know, these centers started to grow? So there's really two main groups of people that you see going into a lot of these. I guess we can call them new cities as opposed to some of the older established cities on the <clears throat> on the East Coast and into the, the further part of the South. You have two groups of people going into some of these newer cities. You have a lot of immigrants coming in, depending on which point in history you're looking at. Uh, a lot of Irish and German immigrants in the latter part of the 19th century. Earlier part of the 20th century, you get a lot of people from Western and Central or Eastern and Central Europe. So a lot of Italians, Poles, you know, anybody from any Midwestern city, there's almost always a large Polish or Italian population somewhere. You know, every Midwestern city has a little Italy somewhere if you look for it. Uh, and then a lot of African-American workers coming up from the South. <clears throat> now, in, the, in this particular part of the country, that's usually what we're looking at. Uh, in places that I study, like Toledo and Detroit, uh, a lot of the people coming from the South are coming from places like Alabama or Mississippi, maybe where there was already a sort of similar work. But those are the two groups of people that you see kind of flooding into these Midwestern cities. Now, there are people who are coming from the East, because no matter what point in history you're looking at, <clears throat> there are people who are living in the East Coast going, it is just too cramped and too crowded, yeah. and it is just not a good place to live. I mean, a lot has been written about more than we can discuss here about the overcrowding of certain neighborhoods in Baltimore and Philly and Boston and New York. Uh, and so there were people that were going west. You know, go west has always been sort of part of the American identity. Uh, but a lot of the people going into these, you know, these newer cities in the Midwest that sort of sprang up and became big industrial centers, a lot of immigrants from Europe and a lot of migrants coming up from the South. Yeah, I mean, and they ended up, you know, what, what were... We all we all know sports, we all know automotive, but you know those weren't the only two, I guess, industries. What were what were some of the other things, uh, you know, that were being produced and manufactured in the area during the time period? Oh my gosh, everything. Uh, you know, Toledo, which is the the subject of my dissertation, uh, was the glass city of the world. I mean, um, anybody who has those storm windows in your basement that you can't see out of and you're not exactly sure what function they serve. 
those big thick windows were made in Toledo. Uh, the fiberglass insulation that you have in your attic, that was made in Toledo. Uh, pretty much all of the tires in the country were made in Akron, Ohio. Uh, if you go to places in St. Louis, in and around St. Louis, there's a lot of parts manufacturing. GE was a big employer out there. There was actually, even into the 1930s and 40s, a large nut pickers union and nut picking organization going on in parts of the Midwest. Uh, so there were a lot of different industries going on. It wasn't just auto and steel. Auto and steel, I think, get the lion's share of the attention because of the sort of outsized influence they had both at the time and also within the historiography and the partially because, you know, the historiography usually is based on what was significant at the time or what people perceived as significant at the time. So when you have huge employers like U.S. Steel or Ford, those tend to dominate a lot of the conversation, whereas, you know, Owens, Illinois Fiberglass or, you know, the Toledo Scale Company or, or whatever, they might employ a lot of people and be a big industry, but they don't have that immediate sort of cultural and social cachet of, of Ford, Chrysler, you know, Carnegie, whoever it is that we're talking about, if we're talking about individuals. So a lot of stuff was made in the Midwest beyond just stuff for cars and steel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, uh, I want to <clears throat> make sure people understood uh, that. Like, I, I don't want to belabor the point that, um, you know, we, it, a lot of steel and a lot of cars be, you know, were manufactured in this area, you know, but like you said, we all, you know, Akron was putting out almost every tire sold in America, you know, uh, we had, you know, apparently a strong nut pickers, you know, which I love to hear. Uh, I totally forgot, you know, Toledo was the glass capital, but then again, I'm more of a Cleveland guy. Uh, for me, Toledo is just Southern Michigan. Uh, so, you know, it's, that little interstate rival rivalry you have, uh, you know. <laughs> well, and you know, even even like kind of everyday sort of quotidian things. Like I think that the ball jarring company was at one point based out of Cincinnati. Somebody would have to check that. But I mean, a, a lot of everyday common use items were made in the Midwest. I mean, I keep going back to Toledo. So sorry for the listeners who don't have uh, the interest that I do in the city of Toledo. But <clears throat> the next time you're at a restaurant, or if you uh, if if you're a person who goes to bars. Look at the bottom of your glass. If there's a little curly QL at the bottom, that stands for Libby. That glass was probably made in Toledo. So even to this day, there's an association with glass in Toledo. So, you know, it, it's not just Ford and Chrysler. It's not just U.S. Steel. Like pretty much any major Midwestern city, if you really look into it, was at one time the headquarters and probably even like the main production site for a product that you use all the time and you just didn't realize it was made there. You look it up and you go, I use that product like every single day. I didn't know it was made, you know, four miles away from me. So, you know, the, the history of the Midwest and what we're kind of calling the Rust Belt, uh, if you really peel it back, it's a lot more than just four or five major cities. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's a, you know, I'd like to say, think of it as just like an entire region. Uh, when when I was digging around, uh, they essentially a lot of the the, the things I read, uh, you know, stated that you know they called it the well at the time it was like called the manufacturing belt or the steel belt, and yeah. it was to differentiate it from the Great Plains because, you know, you can't, you know, we have the Midwest, but you know this this kind of like you mentioned it creeped out of the Midwest, so they wanted to have a differentiation between like our manufacturing belt. And the Great Plains slash breadbasket of a, of the country, mm -hmm. uh, so they you know they came up with those differentiating terms, um, but you know 
we we see like especially in the post civil war era we see the cycle of boom and bust um you know we don't have to like do a whole economic uh you know breakdown um, yeah but you know like <clears throat> we we see this continued growth of these cities during that time period even like and, and can you attribute that to just like as you know the united states is industrializing more and more and it, that that kind of sector is growing and that kind of protected it from those cycles of boom and bust uh heading into the 20th century or is it just that you know they were you know was, was were there other factors that kept them mm -hmm. from you know kind of crashing <clears throat> so it's a really interesting question because there's a lot of things that are all kind of unpacked and sort of stacked on top of each other in there so there actually were cycles of boom and bust you know the the period after the civil war until the first world war I think that there were more actual what we would call economic crises. And I don't, I, I don't know that the term depression was really in vogue until a little bit later, but at the time it was always the crisis or whatever. There were a lot of economic crises. I mean, you could put more or less set your watch or your calendar by it. Uh, it was it was pretty common. Now, obviously, they didn't reach the scale of the of the crash for the you know, in the Great Depression, but they they did happen. But one of the there's a couple of things that are happening. One of which is uh, this is sort of, you know, people talk about the progressive era and the gilded era, like they're two different things. They're the same time period. They they overlap one another almost perfectly. It's like a one-to-one, -one, you know, put them on a timeline overlap. Uh, so you have all these progressive people and all these progressive ideologies. And, and you know, I, I've heard in some of your other, uh, some of your other podcasts, people have talked at length about, you know, the progressive era, people like the Knights of Labor and the sort of emerging of the labor movement. So <clears throat> I won't rehash that too much for for your listeners who, who are already familiar with that, but you have that taking place at the same time that like a golden, well, I guess in, in light of modern context, probably more like the silver medal, but like at the time, the golden era of like unfettered capitalism, you know, growth in a lot of these industries was just kind of exponential and the resistance to it was not really enough to meet it. And then compounding that is the growth of the country. The population of the United States from the end of the Civil War until the Second World War, which is really where my research starts to pick up, I think the population like doubles, doubles and a half, maybe. I mean, it, the population just goes bananas with 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 people coming from all over the world, uh, and all of those things sort of fuse together to kind of create this huge industries that grow, frankly, faster than I think even a lot of the industrialists thought that they would. I think if you were able to go back and really like quiz some of these uh, some of these individuals, they would have been shocked at how quickly they were able to expand, uh, not just their physical you know production facilities or what have you or their workforce, but able to expand their influence into the marketplace, into American culture and society, and more nefariously into American politics. So there's a lot of things happening sort of all at once, and the sort of you know overwhelming sort of like, Clamatory noise of all these things bashing against each other, it creates this sort of environment where it's hard to really rein anything in and everything just sort of happens. I, you don't want to make it sound like it's a completely chaotic system because there's always obviously somebody checking something and you know there's always there's always you know systems in place that we maybe can't see at the time, but it was a really, really dynamic point in American history that sort of allowed for all these things to happen at once. And then once they sort of, you know, never really settled down, but once things started to kind of fall into place, by that point, 
a lot of these, you know, if we want to, I don't know what we want to call them for the sake of, uh, of your viewers, these industrialists, these capitalists, these, these titans of industry, whatever, wherever you fall on that uh, nomenclature discussion. Uh, by the time we actually realize what's going on, they are looking at these burgeoning empires that they have and their outsized influence starts to shape a lot of how, you know, we're talking about the Midwest, how the Midwest and the Rust Belt sort of develops. Yeah, I mean, you got to thank our our titans as we know them, like your your Carnegies, your uh, uh, oh my gosh, your your <clears throat> Rockefellers. You know, they end up. Uh, it's it's not just the industries that they head, but I mean, you know as well as I do, you went to a university that was endowed and na- you know named after one of these one of these people. Yeah. You know, Rockefeller did the same thing. Uh, you know, so it wasn't just like, hey, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're providing jobs because of the industries that they dominate. Uh, but yeah, we're going to build the university. We're going to build the hospital. We're going to build the museums. We're going to do all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you see their names on uh, plastered everywhere, uh, which is the crazy thing. They're, they're on everything. I mean, you, you mentioned my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, um, uh, Vanderbilt, yeah. Stanford, Duke, Johns Hopkins, um, Name's not on it, but I believe that uh, University of Chicago, I think Rockefeller was a, a larger benefactor there, if memory serves. So, I mean, yeah, they, they put their names on a lot of stuff, but that was usually a little bit later on in their uh, in their lives. I think. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, that's true. But I mean, even then, a lot of the industries that they serve still had, you know, company towns and, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, you know, for, for listeners that don't know what a company town is, it's like, well, this is where my job is, and now I have to live here. So the company provides housing. It provides the stores that you shop at. Uh, you know, so <clears throat> if, if you know, there were a lot of instances where you had companies that didn't pay you enough, so you took out, you know, you borrowed against your paycheck just to get your kids' shoes, right? And if <clears throat> something unfortunate happened where the mill closed, uh, you know, you had nothing. Um, you know, there's there's nothing good about company towns, no matter uh, what, you know, people like Elon Musk will tell you now uh, where he's essentially trying to do the same program. Uh, yeah, if you uh, for, for the listeners, if you if you live in or are from a, um, a smaller community, particularly in the Midwest or the Northeast, although definitely prevalent in the South, too. If you see a section of your of your city or your town where there's a lot of houses that look exactly the same not in like the sort of 1950s ticky tacky suburb style uh but like in in canton here where i'm where i'm currently at right now um there's a neighborhood where there are about 50 or 60 houses that all are truly identical now the people who live there now have obviously spruced them up and changed them up a bit but those houses were built by i can't remember which employer back in the day because it was relatively adjacent to where uh, the the factory was, and so they built those houses there, knowing that their employees would never have to be late to work. You know, <clears throat> so there's there's still remnants and signs of these old company. Even if it wasn't a company town, Canton was never a company town; it was too big. Uh, but you still find like company neighborhoods, yeah, kind of scattered across uh, the landscape. So it, the we're, they're still around us if you look for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and we're gonna get more into your wheelhouse now, right? Um, even by the early 20th century, uh, one of the one of the the quotes I found said that Worcester, Massachusetts, was a desolate, uh, you know, an abandoned area. You know, and that's where the textile mills that, mm-hmm. you know, when we when they set them up, 
excuse me, they set them up, you know, when, when we first, you know, when, when European and white settlers first got here. Um, but by the early 20th century, they started moving those mills down south. So we're already kind of seeing what a displacement of a dominant industry in one area can do, right? And in mm-hmm. Worcester, I mean, Worcester, for whether people like to admit it or not, like it hasn't really been the same, right? Um, no. I mean, honestly, when you, Brad, like I don't know if you're a <clears throat> boxing fan, but the most famous export from Worcester, Mass., is uh mickey ward you know yeah <laughs> 140 pound you know champ you know and they um probably most people know him because of the movie the fighter with yeah. uh you know marky mickey mark ward. and uh Our, christian yeah. Bale, you know yeah um but you know we're, we're already seeing kind of it's it's like foreshadowing what's going to happen to the rest of it right mm-hmm. uh, but you know why why did we start seeing kind of like this migration of businesses away uh, from the Northeast at this point. And like, and my, for a question <clears> for me, and it, it could just be like a, a educated guess for you, is if we had all these smart men in charge of these industries, that all they had to do was look East at Worcester and say, wow, this could happen, you know, uh, you know, to, to Worcester if, if the industry left. You know, why weren't other, excuse me, I shouldn't have said the people in charge of the industries, but the smart people in charge of the state and local governments, why, why didn't they prep for that possible, uh, you know, eventuality? And if the business leaves, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of not left with nothing. <clears throat> so there, there's kind of two questions and they're all, I'll, I'll get to that first one because they're, they're, they're related to each other, but I think I need to answer the first one first. So uh, why, why did some of these companies move if we're talking about specifically like textile and some of the industries that were in the East Coast that moved, generally speaking, like you were saying, to the South. Cheaper labor costs. I mean, we're talking about a point in American history, which I guess that's not really specific because there's still a a, a horrible gender and racial gap in, in pay in this country now. But we're talking about a point in American history where that gap was even more pronounced. So if you're a textile plant, I won't even you know venture to name a name, but if, if you're a textile mill in, in somewhere in New England and most of the people that you're employing are, you know, native born whites of some variety or maybe immigrants from um, from Europe who are maybe not unionized, but they're definitely a little bit more organized and maybe they're demanding a certain rate of pay. Um, you know, a lot of your listeners are familiar with a lot of the textile strikes that took place in the latter part of the 18th and early part of the 19th century. You know, maybe they look at it and go, you know what, we can go to the South where there's a lot of people who want work, we can pay them less, and maybe they won't have the the organizational structure in place. Maybe they won't be as as militant as some of the workers here. And so then they just move. And then to the to the second point, and this is applicable, I think, to these textile mills and these textile employers, but also to the uh, more like traditional or what we would consider traditional industrial manufacturing places in the Midwest, why don't they plan for that eventuality? Why don't they look east? Um, I don't know why I'm pointing to my right. That's not even east <laughs> from where I'm sitting. But why, why, why do they look east and, uh, and not look at what happened and, and plan for that? I don't know that a lot of them really thought that it would ever happen. I think there's a, a certain degree of kind of, I don't want to call it hubris, but I think too many people were too invested in the system in place to really consider that there was going to be an alternative, that anybody would kind of break this sort of unspoken agreement. And you actually see a lot of cities, depending on which point in history and and where in the country you're looking at, 
where the where the city itself almost sort of makes a compact with some of their bigger employers to try and stay. You know, in in Toledo, you see it pretty pretty evidently when a lot of the major employers kind of get what they want, so to speak, in some respects, because the city brings them in into a lot of their long-term planning. You know, the, the mayor and the city council of Toledo reach out to, you know, Owens, Illinois, Owens, Corning, whoever, and say, hey, would you like to be a part of this tripartite committee structure that's going to look at the, the future of the city? When you make an offer like that, there's, there's kind of a tendency to assume that those people aren't going to go anywhere. But uh, what that fails to take into account is that, uh, and, and you've alluded to it already, these these employers are always going to look to maximize their advantage wherever they are. And so even if they're shaking hands with their right hand, with their left hand, they're flipping through the phone book, calling up other other places. So it's it's a combination of a lot of things. There's there's good faith actors. There's bad faith actors. There's misfeasance, malfeasance, nonfeasance, all the feasances. Um, and they all kind of combine at the same time so that you have people who are looking towards their future in that place and other people who are looking towards their future in another place and they both don't know which direction they're looking yeah i I, it's just i you know i grew up you know my grandfather worked over 25 almost 30 years for a steel plant he had nothing to show for it at the end um like not even a a retirement like the 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 fight to keep the plant in champion ohio essentially Mm -hmm. bankrupted uh, the union and all supporters, and that was it. So when he when it finally closed, he had to go work at like handyman hardware just to keep the lights on. You know, like it's 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 a real bummer, man. Like I just <laughs> that that happens that happens all over, and it's it's still kind of happening now. I mean, um, there's a there's a town in Ohio or a city in Ohio called Worcester, Ohio, not spelled the same as the one in Massachusetts. Uh, different different spelling. I I would argue that the Ohio spelling is more phonetic. Yes. Uh, but there's 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 this town in Worcester, Ohio, where uh, Rubbermaid, the, the the Rubbermaid company was at. Most of you probably had or you or or have even still Rubbermaid containers, big, you know, lock tight containers that you can store things in. Pretty reliable products. They made a lot of things. They invested. I can't remember when this was. It was when I was still in high school, so maybe 15 years ago. They invested a lot of money into the local high school and built this beautiful, just absolutely gorgeous new high school. All these amazing facilities and amenities and whatnot. And they did so, I I don't remember the exact contours of the deal, but I think that they were going to help pay for a lot of the maintenance of it for a while. Within a few years of them, you know, paying for and building this wonderful new high school for the city of Worcester, they left and they went bankrupt and they moved. So the biggest employer in the city of Worcester was gone. And now the city was left with this big state-of-the-art high school that they couldn't afford to pay because, number one, they weren't originally intending to pay for it. And number two, the tax dollars that were going to help pay for it were going to come from people probably working for Rubbermaid, who's no longer there. And so overnight, I mean, not to be dramatic, but kind of overnight, the city just was like cut in, like, you know, a third of it was just lopped off. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like what happened in Lordstown, you know, with the GM plant there. Um, And then you had that asshole come in in the last three years, you know, with designs to we're going to put the people of Lordstown back to work, making this mythical truck that was never going to work. Uh, You know, any 
you know, I, I wish I, it's a it's the Lordstown Truck Company is is what ended mm-hmm. up filling the gap. And but this guy was such a grifter that uh, he never sold one vehicle, um, but he managed to raise several billion dollars in capital um, without putting anybody to work and making any you know any uh, any any product so to speak. Um, and if anybody wants to read a very sad story, go ahead and, and read about the uh, the Lordstown Truck Company. Uh, it's awful um, what what he did to that community after they were just gutted by the the GM plant closing. So, yeah, this is going to be a depressing episode, guys. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, you I, I almost I almost mentioned this earlier when you were kind of doing the the lead into the to the episode here when you're talking about when when people think of the Rust Belt, the the images that pop into their mind. Um, you know, they, they think of like Bruce Springsteen songs and Bob Seger songs and that, that kind of heartland rock. And they have these like physical images in their head of rusted out factories and, and vacant buildings. And uh, I, I actually refer to that a lot. If, if any of you follow me on Twitter at History Brad, uh, frequently I refer to that as like Midwestern safaris or depression porn because that's what it is. I mean, yeah. people people go like there's no denying that those places exist. I mean, if you are from any of the places that we're talking about and you know, you you've seen a building like that. You've seen a lot like that. So it's, we're not, no one's saying that those places don't exist, but those images get turned into a synecdoche and everyone just assumes that that's what the entirety of that area is like. Uh, the the Great Lakes Megapolis, which is a census designated region of the United States, is the most populous part of the country even to this day. Like, if you look up the mega regions of the country, there's the there's the Atlantic Corridor, there's there's Florida, Texas, the Southwest, you know, most of California, and then there's this huge population center that is the Midwest or what we call the Rust Belt. There's still a lot of people there, but what happens is is that most people who are not from the area who just live in another part of the country haven't paid attention to this part of the country since about 1975. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that, that's the, that's the thing. And we're going to get into why we should still pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't want, not to jump ahead too much. Yeah. Sorry. Oh no. I mean, that's, that's the great thing, man. You're the star of the show here. I'm just trying, I'm just kind of here to keep us on track okay. uh, because until I started doing scripts, like uh, when, like I was telling you about Dr. Walton, he is a great friend of mine. The episode I recorded with him about the Black Panther Party for self-defense was almost three hours. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, so because he can just go, he can just talk about him. Like he's, you know, so mm. and I was like, well, we're going to do scripts so we can we can kind of keep it to a manageable there we uh, go. time frame, you know. Um, but we know that war is is huge for manufacturing. It always has yeah. been, always will be, right? Um, but, you know, how did you know, the, the onset of the first world war, um, like what, did that manage to kind of push, you know, what we would now call the Rust Belt and the industries within it, did it kind of push them into overdrive to kind of, uh, set them up for that beginning of those big, you know, you know how they did the overhead, uh, right. films, you know, where you see all the factories going with the smokestacks billowing smoke, mm-hmm. you know, like what, would you say that was the beginning of kind of like that kind of age, that age as we would know it? It kind of was. So, and, and again, like uh, everyone who's listening is going to notice that I, I routinely speak in like caveats and juxtapositions. That's that's the way historians are. I apologize, but it depends on which part you're looking at. So, if you're looking at more, even within the Rust Belt or the Midwest, this industrial sector of the country, even in there, you have 
sort of older, more established places and the newer places. And it more or less kind of follows from east to west. So if we look at a place like Pittsburgh on the advent of the First World War, that sort of sends Pittsburgh into overdrive because one of the raw materials that you need for any conflict, steel. Yeah. And at this point, Pittsburgh was already a, a steel giant. And that sort of expanded into the greater Ohio Valley, into places like Steubenville, Ironton, Youngstown, even up into Cleveland. So some of the more established industries like that were already pretty steady. They took off, which you know was good for them because the boom and bust of, of capitalism at this point in history, there had been a lot of up and down. So uh, a straight shot up was, was what a lot of those industries needed. But if you look at some of the other industries that come to dominate this part of the country in the next 20, 30 years, they haven't really taken off yet. You know, if you look at some of the bigger industries like um, like refined glass, or if you look at auto or anything related to auto, like the rubber industry in Akron, uh, if you look at some of the more um, parts manufacturing and things like GE and the, the things that they make, those technologies, those industries haven't really taken off yet. They're there, but they're in sort of their early days. But what happens is, is that this overall mobilization and this increased focus on production kind of swells these areas in, in terms of population. So people start to go to these areas because, well, there's job for the war, making war products. There's probably jobs for other things too. So you start to see some of these industries not really take off, but they start to form themselves. You know, I, I, I'm going to keep going back to points of reference that I can talk about at more, more, more length and more detail. But like if you look at Toledo, the, the auto industry was actually a big part of Toledo's identity, too. Not, not as much as Detroit, but it was definitely still a part of it. <clears throat> if you look at like the Willys Overland Company, which is the company that actually originally designed and mass produced uh, the Jeep. OK, uh, they don't really take off until the Second World War, but they start getting a little bit more production at this point because there are some people who are going into the city, whether they're going to Toledo or if they're on their way to somewhere else. You know, Toledo's natural cross point of the Midwest. If you're going east or west, you're probably going to go through Toledo. Mm -hmm. If you're going north or south, you're probably going to go through Toledo. Uh, and this happens all over the place. So the established industries, they just explode. They go into complete overdrive. And it's very similar to what people would expect to think of when they're thinking about like production during the Second World War, just like 24 hours nonstop, again, depending on which industry and where we're at. Some of these what would become dominant industries that are a little bit in their infancy, they don't explode, but their foundations are set at this point. And you can clearly look at the First World War, specifically the last couple of years and the first few years immediately after the First World War, and you can see the blueprint being laid for some of the new emerging and eventually dominant industries that you see in the Midwest being laid right, right then. Yeah, I mean, and that that's, I, I appreciate that because like you, World War II really kind of kicked things off because like, you know, like I was a soldier and, you know, mm. we, we, outside of the machine gun, right, um, our, our basic service rifle really wasn't that complicated. Uh, but as you as we get into the Second World War, we see, like you had mentioned, like those fine, uh, fine, uh, what do you call them? E essentially, the the mechanism of like trigger assemblies, like they're they're much more <clears throat> complex. They're made of smaller yeah. parts, you know. So you have fabricators that pop up to make those, you know, to mass produce, like uh, you know, 
our Tommy guns, which, mm -hmm. you know, we, we jumped with them. The NCOs used them in airborne units. Uh, they just didn't have the big drum on them. It was just one straight magazine, right, of 9 mil. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we had the M1, that, which is, which is a, you know, it's not a bolt-operated rifle at that point, you know. Um, you know, so we, we start seeing, like, the complexities and advances in military technology that kind of drive uh, the changes in the manufacturing sector uh, yeah. so they can be mass-produced. If memory uh, serves, I think Thompson actually made the submachine gun to be a, a trench weapon. Yes, I, be yeah. I believe his, his goal was to make a weapon that soldiers could use when they were going over the top. And once they got to the trench, they could, you know, effectively cover an entire trench. Whereas with a rifle, you can, you know, you really can't cover, you know, 20, 30 men all huddled together in a trench. Yeah. And it, the, the sad thing is Thompson couldn't get it out uh, in time for the end of the war uh, because, again, those those uh, uh, what went into allowing for full automatic fire. Uh, you know, th those kinds mm -hmm. of mechanisms weren't kind of developed, but uh, he did get out enough time for gangsters to use them to beat prohibition. He did. He did. <laughs> well, the, the unfortunate the unfortunate legacy of uh, I mean, history is full of in, of, of well-intended people and, and the consequences not being the same. Yeah. I mean, it, but it did get used in, an, in another wider conflict. So I'm, I'm sure, it, you know, it, it was it wasn't all for naught for for Mr. Thompson. Right. Um, yeah, but how did we, uh, but we, we see the end of the first world war and we get into that kind of, you know, that, that gilded age, as they like to call it, you know, the, the roaring twenties, you know, people have it, uh, you know, it, we're seeing this very robust American economy hit. And then we get into, uh, you know, the, the beginnings of the great depression. Like how did the Rust Belt deal with that? Uh, knowing that, you know, we, we saw things almost change overnight, you know, mm -hmm. So the depression, the depression obviously affected the entire country. It affected the entire world. Uh, so with, without getting into some kind of overly hyperbolic statement, a lot of the cities that are in the part of the country that we call the Rust Belt were actually hit harder than bigger places like New York or, or D.C. or Boston. Some of those cities, uh, to, to use a term that wasn't really in vogue at the time to kind of get a little anachronistic, Places like, uh, like New York were almost too big to fail. You know, the Depression was definitely bad in New York City. There's no doubt about it, because I know someone's going to come into the, the comments on this video and be like, the Depression was terrible in New York. What are you talking about? It was terrible. No one's saying that it wasn't. But if you look at it as a perspective issue, as a matter of scale, the scale of the Depression was actually often pretty bad, if not worse, in the Midwest, because a lot of these Midwestern cities, let's set aside Chicago, because Chicago is really the one giant in the Midwest. After Chicago, I think the next biggest city is like a quarter of the population of Chicago. Yeah. It, 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 there's, a, there's a significant drop off. If you look at all of the other cities in the Midwest, they're kind of just getting their feet under them in a substantive way when the depression hits. A lot of these newer cities are just kind of getting their populations are starting to swell a little bit. You know, their one or two dominant industries are starting to get off the ground. Uh, they're really starting to come into their own. And then all of a sudden, bam, everything just uh, gets taken out from under them. So, I mean, a bank in Milwaukee or a bank in Dayton or Gary or Toledo might not have had, well, definitely didn't have as much money in circulation and in holding as any bank in, you know, in New York City. But the percentage of the wealth of the city in those banks was way greater. Yeah. So a bank with a million dollars in capital that goes kaput in, in Toledo, 
that might have been a third of the capital circulating in Toledo at the time. Or, you know, a bank with $2 million in Milwaukee that goes down, that's a quarter of the city right there. Obviously, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I, I think you get what I'm saying. So, like, the, the Great Depression was devastating for, for most of what we're, the region of the country that we're talking about. It, it really was. And, like, unemployment, you know, when people say that the average unemployment in the, you know, during the Depression was X percent, you know, usually people hover between 25 and 35 or so. In some of these Midwestern cities, it, that, you know, there's a reason why it's that average is 30 or 35. It's because in other places it was more. The yeah. Midwest is where it was more. A lot of these cities, you're getting unemployment figures that are like catastrophic levels. I mean, there are various points in history. If you look at some of these cities, depending on you know which year of the Depression we're looking at, over 50 percent of the city is unemployed or not gainfully employed. You know, maybe selling odds and end things or doing repairs, what, what we would call kind of gig work now. Yeah. You know, in, in so far as that kind of work existed, that's what a lot of people were subsisting on. So the, the depression was absolutely devastating. And part of the reason that you see this explosion of labor unrest in the Midwest is exactly because of that, because you had all these people coming to these new cities looking for work, looking to get away from the problems of some of these bigger cities. And they come to Milwaukee or Gary or Detroit or Toledo going, oh, whew, those problems are going to be behind us now. And then they get there and they find that the problems are actually a lot worse because there's not other things for that city to fall back on. You know, one of the advantages of New York is that, again, it's a giant. One industry is not going to take down the city of New York. It's just not going to happen. One industry can take down Milwaukee, especially at this point in history. Yeah. One industry can take down Toledo or Detroit. So you get all these people who came to these cities looking for work, thinking that they finally found their place where they can belong in this in this new America, this land of opportunity to, to fall into the rhetoric of the, of the period, only to have that immediately snatched away. That's why you see not more strikes during the Depression, but strikes of much grander scale during the Depression. You know, the, the Toledo Autolite strike, which I wrote my thesis, my undergraduate and master's thesis on, the Teamster strike in Minneapolis, you know, the Nutpicker strikes in, the, <clears throat> in, the, in, the, in the St. Louis and Missouri and Arkansas and stuff. That's why you see all of these really big strikes, you know, the biggest one being, you know, the, the sit down in 1935 in, in, in Detroit and in Flint. You see all of these things happening because all of these people all of a sudden have their dreams snatched away from them. And the radicalism just sort of escalates from there. Now, there's a lot of other reasons why the radicalism in that period kind of accelerates, you know, the, the increasing sort of pressure on the government, the, the well, not even really the first Red Scare. There's, basically just been a perpetual state of red scare in this country uh, but the red scare after the war and after the russian revolution the sort of increasing number of eastern european and central european immigrants coming into the country the different sort of guilds and fraternal organizations and you know just out and out labor organizations that they belong to uh, increasing numbers of african americans from the south coming into the midwest already you know stirring up the midwest because there's a a deep history of racism in the Midwest that a lot of Midwesterners pretend doesn't exist. We like to yeah. act like we like to act like that's only other parts of the country, but no, we we have it too. Um, all of these things sort of combined, and anything that remotely smacks of workers' rights or people's rights or any, any kind of remote radicalism is immediately put down. Well, eventually everyone got tired of that and just sort of said the hell with it and just you know flipped the table over and and tried to overthrow the the city. I mean. 
a handful of cities had general strikes during this period. And uh, it was kind of a watershed moment for labor because a lot of these things culminated in some of, you know, Roosevelt's more progressive policies at the time. You know, how progressive they actually were is obviously up for debate. But this is a period where the Midwest sort of finds its character, so to speak. The, the big entities that control the Midwest, the political machines, which, oh man, for those listening, it's called the Windy City, not because of the gale force winds off of the lake. It's because of the extreme political corruption. That's why, <laughs> that's why Chicago is called the Windy City. The, the, it's complete coincidence that you know, the, the, the wind is cold coming off of the lake. Um, but a lot of the political machines get developed at this point. A lot of the political dynasties get formed at this point. Um, and you start to see a lot of the bigger employers form at this point. But at the same time, you see a lot of the bigger um, reactions to this forming at this point. This is when you start to see entities like the CIO really come into its own. And the CIO and entities like the UAW really start to assert themselves as social, cultural, and political forces at this point. And those those groups, those organizations, and that sort of like radical working class, hardworking ethos that we associate with the Midwest really becomes on brand at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an important point because uh, it's going to kind of take us into the next topic. But, you know, this is this is kind of like the high point for the American labor union, uh, a labor movement. You know, maybe there aren't as many active unions just because, you know, we, we are just we're dealing with this horrible economic downturn. Uh, whole industries were wiped out, um, but we we do see people get more organized, and and they're they they are speaking with with one voice, you know, and that kind of that takes us into the Second World War, which which pulls us, you know, out of the mm -hmm. depression. Um, but you know what, a lot of people don't realize is even in 1945, the Second World War is not even over yet, and the federal government is is strike breaking, like mm -hmm. they are strike breaking. Um, you know, so we're, we're already seeing kind of like a backlash against the American worker uh, for helping, you know, essentially defeat fascism, you know, across the globe. Um, but, you know, wh what was what was the reason for this? You know, like we, we literally just went through this horrible depression where we're putting people back to work. We're in mm -hmm. this essentially a global struggle against fascism. And before, and, you know, pens put to paper on a peace treaty. You know, we're already cracking down on the American worker again. So a lot of things in here. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that we're getting to this this topic because it's, it's one of the things that I focus on in my research. So from the moment that the workers first got their real victories with like the NRA and, and, and workers rights and stuff like that in 1934-35, the minute that happened, conservative Democrats and Republicans already started working on, on what would become the Taft-Hartley Act of 1946. So like, they're already working on that. They, they, the day that, the, that Roosevelt signed the NRA into law and the Wagner Act went into effect, there's already a counter, uh, counter protest. I, I feel like they were just waiting for him to die, like get out of office. I think that's, I feel like that's- That, yeah, that well, and that's, you know. that, was, that was the point I was gonna get to. So like, the, they're okay. immediately, they immediately <laughs> start working. No, 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 it's, it's, it's good. We're, we're on the same page here, which is great. The, so the first thing that happens is there's already a conservative kind of backlash against. And if you go and look at a lot of the government contracts that are being signed at this point, there's already a lot of no strike clauses being agreed to in a lot of these con contracts. You know, uh, 
there were more strikes during World War II than there were during the Depression. So these no strike clauses did not stop workers from protesting. Um, pretty much any point in the war, there's like a couple hundred thousand people on strike across the country. And now that's the entire country. That's not just in the Midwest. That's also including you know, uh, stevedores and people working on, on the waterfront and the West Coast and, and stuff like that. But you know, the, the Second World War actually was a lot of labor unrest, but it was sort of glossed over and these strikes were always mediated kind of quickly, whether it was the union sort of quickly giving in or uh, the employer kind of giving a quick concession just to get things back on track. More strikes, but the intensity of them was nothing like what we saw in the 30s for the most part. But then what happened to the point that you alluded to was the real reason why that backlash is so quick and so pronounced. And like you were pointing out, kind of at odds with this ethos of the war. Like this is the war to defeat fascism. This is the case study to show why democracy, American capitalist democracy is the superior form of government to all others. And then immediately turn and turn on all the people who helped make that happen. Like you said, part of the underlying problem, I would argue, is that Roosevelt wasn't still there. Uh, the fact that, I mean, people, a lot of hay is made whenever there's these lists that come out about you know, ranking presidents. One just came out not too long ago. Uh, and, and Harry Truman was ranked in the top 10, which not to get into a debate on the, the merits of, Hen, uh, of Truman, but uh, Truman actually was one of the reasons why. Truman was in some ways pro-worker and in some ways was kind of progressive, but Truman was also not a new dealer. He wasn't Roosevelt's first choice. Roosevelt's first choice was possibly the man who could have been the best president in American history, Henry Wallace. Yeah, Henry uh, Wallace. Henry Wallace was probably the most ardent New Dealer. Probably him and Francis Perkins were the most hardcore New Dealers in Roosevelt's cabinet. Uh, he was a scientist. He had developed a new strain of corn that I believe made it easier to grow and was more high yield. He was, you know, I think he was a chemist or a botanist by training. Uh, a hardcore pacifist, a big workers' rights advocate. And he was Roosevelt's vice president, and he was who Roosevelt personally wanted to see become the vice president. And then at the convention, uh, and I won't get into this too much because there's there's people who have written about this and you know it's, it's a very complicated issue, but I think it was Wallace was basically ready to be ratified as as the candidate, as Roosevelt's running mate. And pro-Trum, well, really just anti-Roosevelt Democrats uh, caused some kind of kerfuffle, some sort of you know disruption on the floor. And they were able to invoke a parliamentary rule to stop proceedings because of the of whatever was going on. It was too chaotic. And so we have to abandon proceedings and we'll come back again tomorrow and pick it up from here. Uh, and apparently what happened overnight is these anti-Roosevelt Democrats uh, financed a lot of money, greased a couple of palms here and there. And the next day or the day after, we were able to get Truman uh, pushed forward as the nominee. Um, and that, that radically changed American history in a variety of ways. You know, the, the outcome of the war, the use of the atomic bomb, the Cold War, setting all of that aside, all of those things probably would have been different. But the reaction domestically to labor and to work and to civil rights was also dramatically different because yeah. Henry Wallace was going to probably take, had he been the vice president and had everything you know uh, happened the way that it happened with Roosevelt passing away when he did, Wallace would have had a completely different take on that from what we from what we can glean from his his works, his writings, 
the things that he advocated for while he was, you know, working with Roosevelt and was in his cabinet, probably would have been a much more pro-labor kind of a guy than, than Truman. Probably would have, you know, Truman did veto uh, or tried to veto um, Taft-Hartley to his credit. Uh, but Wallace, I think, would have been a much more pro-labor president uh, than Truman even was. And so I think that's also part of it. I don't think we can underscore how quickly history sort of flipped with yeah. Truman v. Uh, Wallace as the as the vice president uh, for Roosevelt's last term. So a lot a lot of things happened at that point that sort of made that possible. This this long standing resentment by corporate Democrats uh, against a lot of Roosevelt's ideas. Never enough for them to formally switch parties, which I always find very interesting. But enough <laughs> that they were just enough that they were just like constantly pissed yes. for like you know 10, 12 years, just simmering in anger off on the sidelines. That combined with a change kind of in direction for the Democratic Party, because we do kind of have a, a bit of a right turn uh, once Roosevelt passes away. Um, that all kind of combines into this sort of weird, unexpected backlash on the workers who help make the, the arsenal of democracy that we always talk about help make it so successful. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's the thing. Like, I would I would argue that half the propaganda put out during the war was aimed at the worker. You know, yeah. like, like we can't do this without you. You know, get in the factory. You know, uh, grow when when you go to work. Make sure you turn your lights off. You know, like it was stuff like that. It geared towards the individual laborer. If, if you look at the cultural ephemera of the era, they they equate working in the factory with being on the front line. They they really yeah. do. Like, they they they. Anybody who goes to work and carries a hard hat and a pail, they would. Ha I mean, there, I think that there actually is an image, if I don't misremember here, of you know, you you fight on the home front while we fight on the battlefront, or so, or so, something to that effect. Like yeah. that was a pretty common sort of rhetorical device and rhetorical image that like you're fighting at the home front, we're fighting on the battlefront, we're both at war, we're fighting different wars. Like the workers were the backbone of this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's shocking. Uh, like when I sat down with Dr. Bobadilla for the history of the labor yeah. movement, like I didn't realize that they immediately sent strike breakers out in 45, like it was like uh, March, April, 1945. Yeah. You know, we, we haven't even, we haven't even hit, you know, hidden VE day yet, you know? So it's like, I just, I, I found that baffling, you know, <laughs> like where, yeah. <laughs> you know, ha literally like you said, like you said, half, half of your war effort, the people at home, that are making the tools of war, you know, you're, you're cracking down on them because they're like, hey, you know, yeah, I, we get it. We have to get this stuff into the hands of service members overseas. But guess what? You don't get to just give me pennies on the dollar to go do this. I know what I'm worth and I know what, you know, I should be paid. Um, and of course, no management likes to hear that. They don't want their workers to no. realize that, you know? <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's important to note too, there's, there's, a, there's another aspect to some of the backlash. It's not all. Now, this this can explain everything, but it does explain a decent part. And it makes more sense when you look at like the longer story of, of America post uh, post war. A lot of the workforce setting aside some of the, the, the white men who just couldn't work because they were too old or too young. A lot of the workforce were women and people of color. African-Americans were working more and more in industries that previously had tried to keep them out. Women, white or otherwise, were working in industries that previously had wanted to keep them out. And so there was a real fear of having a dramatically changed workforce after the war. 
because workers of any variety were always pushed down in this country and by this country. That's that's never really changed. And I don't think that's really news to anybody listening yep. to this. Right it, now. It, that is the actual American pastime is uh, uh, yeah. corporations abusing American labor. <laughs> but if if corporations are going to abuse, you know, the workers that they personally enjoy the most in this period, the ones that they want to hire, which are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, they are not going to have, you know, good feelings. <laughs> they're, they're not going to be happy about employing anyone who's outside of that. So some of the reaction, I think, against workers after the war is definitely against the rising strength of workers. There's no doubt about it. Workers were becoming stronger. American unions were getting bigger. You know, the, the immediate post-war period, as a lot of people have already said, uh, the biggest period of unionization in American history, something like 33% of workers were part of a union in the mid part of the 1950s. But I do think that part of the backlash against work was an attempt to try and revert the working class, the industrial working class, back to a predominantly white, predominantly male, and predominantly native-born workforce. There's a real backlash against particularly African-Americans, women, and some of the newer immigrants that are coming into the country. So, I mean, I mean, this is the same country, you know, as this is happening, there are American citizens in concentration camps on the West Coast because they happen to be, you know, Japanese ancestry. So, I mean, this is a country at the time that already has problems with race, uh, deep, deep-seated problems with race. So I think some of the reaction actually could be a reaction against the people who were in the workforce, not just an emerging industrial workforce. Yeah, I mean, and that makes a lot of sense, though, because this is the United States and where this isn't the first time this has happened. This is probably on a the largest scale in which it's happened, right, where yeah. you've had to mobilize people you know, on the home front to make the tools of war, mm -hmm. to send the boys off to fight, you know. Uh, but then they always try and stuff that genie in a bot, you know, or, you know, stuff that back in the bottle uh, when the war is over. Well, I think after the Second World War, that was going to be much harder to do, mm -hmm. considering the scope of mobilization that it took, uh, you know, to go fight the war. Um, but yeah, that's that's a pretty American thing to do as well. Uh, you know, well, we've seen it a few times. Well, and you, you see it, you know, this isn't something that's new to anybody at the time. I mean, uh, if you look at pretty much the, the start of the war in Europe, before the U.S. even gets involved, if you look at the start of the war in Europe and in Asia all the way to the war's conclusion, you see this being t the discussed in different parts of the country. I mean, the double V campaign is probably the most famous, you know, the victory at home and or victory abroad and victory at home. African-Americans fighting to end fascism abroad and domestically. You know, fighting to fight against the forces that are trying to oppress, you know, people in Europe and people in Asia, but also the forces that are oppressing us here at home. Uh, so I think a lot of people were keenly aware that there was going to be a sort of reckoning or reconceptualization of the workforce post-war. And unfortunately, the people who were against that, you know, reconceptualization were the people with the most power and influence to determine the outcome. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you, you've already mentioned that, you know, we're, we're hitting the heyday of uh, unions in the United States and around mm -hmm. this time, you know, the, the end of the Second World War, heading into the, the mid 50s. You know, I've seen anything from 33 to like almost 40 percent of the American workforce are members of unions uh, during this time. And of course, you, you know how it is. You read three different things. You're going to get three different answers. But yeah. so, so I, I always go with 33 to, to 40 percent. I think that's a good it's not too broad of a window, you know, to, to use. Um, but, you know, 
we, we see, you know, people are working, you know, in, in factories in Cleveland, like you said, in Pittsburgh, in Toledo, in Canton, you know, in, in you know, cities in Illinois and Indiana, but they're not living in the city anymore. You know, they they bought a house in the burbs and they're commuting, right? Uh, right. What 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 kind of led to this kind of like uh, urban exodus uh, to and, and and the growth of suburbs? So not to to parrot the work of of scholars much more senior and much more knowledgeable on this than I am, but you know the the issue of white flight has been talked about a lot by historians. You know anyone who follows uh, Kevin Cruz on Twitter, uh, his book White Flight. I, I think it was actually his dissertation, which. What a what a dissertation topic to be your first book. Hell of a hell of a yeah. thing for for him. Um, but but a, a lot of the conversation that we've had on that has been pretty consistent since you know since the idea of white flight came out. Basically, as a lot of these cities changed in terms of their ethnic and racial composition, tensions were starting to build. You know, if you if you look at we'll we'll, we'll go back in time just a, a quick second here. If you look at the latter part of the depression and the early part of the war, you do see a lot of African-Americans from the South, the deep South, but also the Mid-South coming up into the Midwest, coming up into the North, trying to look for better jobs, either in terms of options or, or the fact that a lot of these jobs were union jobs. Now, I'm not going to get into the history of race discrimination in American unions. That could be an entire episode of this yeah. on its own. Uh, but when you when you see the you see all these people coming up into these cities looking for you know a, a kind of a second opportunity a new opportunity going to places like Chicago Detroit Gary Dayton uh, Cleveland they they find work they find a place but it's it's hotly contested it's not an easy it's not an easy switch you know somebody from Mobile coming to Toledo and I, I say those cities specifically because that's something that I cited in my dissertation. They don't just immediately find a community and a place to work. It's a struggle. It's a struggle the whole way. And they're resisting or they're, they're fighting against a, a sort of white hegemony that doesn't really want to change. It doesn't want the composition of the city to change, of the workforce to change. You know, uh, again, the, the, the Midwest has deep-seated and hitherto unaddressed problems with race. There's clashes throughout the post-war era between... Uh, newly arriving black workers and families and and white families and white workers. Uh, that frames the next two decades. Uh, but just in that specific moment of suburbanization, a lot of middle class, upper middle class white families who had been there for a while, they just decide to leave. You know, this this is kind of the beginning of the era of, of redlining and uh, block busting and all of the things that white homeowners and homeowners associations used to kick out uh, people of color so that white people could stay or come in and, and take over. And so a lot of white families decided they were just going to move and they were going to move to the suburbs. And again, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, one of the things that made the Midwest attractive for a lot of people was space. There's a lot of space. People joke about how flat the Midwest is and there's a certain degree of truth to that. But, you know, <laughs> if if you look outside of some of your bigger Midwestern cities, especially once you get out of Ohio, because the, the half of Ohio that you and I are both from is rather hilly and, and rugged. But once you get out into the Midwest, it is very flat, flatter than, you know, most of the country. So you can expand. 
there's room for you to build these huge sprawling communities. I mean, people like to talk about Levittown over in Long Island as sort of the, the case study of suburbia. But for every Levittown, there's like 30 similar areas outside of Detroit and Cleveland and Toledo and Chicago. Like they're, they're all over the place. So it was easy for a lot of these white families to just move out of the city. And then that sort of is where we start to see the beginnings. Uh, it's hard to attribute beginnings and endings to things in history, as anyone, uh, all of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware. But this is kind of where we see the beginnings of what, and I don't like using it, but the urban crisis, because uh, calling it an urban crisis makes it sound like it was outside of anybody's control. It wasn't. There were plenty of ways that we could have addressed it better. Uh, but this is sort of the beginning of that. When all of these families move and they take all of their taxes with them, all of their wealth with them, Eventually, once they move, like you were saying, sometimes the factory even moves out to them. You know, the, that huge Lordstown plant, there used to be a lot of production in Cleveland. They just said the hell with it. And they just moved further yeah. east. So this massive amount of white flight taking place, it's, it's a physical, you know, relocation. I don't want to call it a migration. It's a physical relocation of people. But it's also a relocation of capital and of resources and of the work itself. And so you start to see these huge vacuums created in these cities where things used to be, where houses used to be, good houses used to be, uh, places of employment used to be. And you start to see a shift between increasingly white suburbs and increasingly black cities. And I mean, that's part of the reason why a lot of these Midwestern cities were left to rot is, frankly, a lot of these cities became too black for some people. And American racism being what it is, you know, they, they were content to let cities like Flint and Detroit just crumble rather than, you know, rather than fix them. So uh, the, the white flight was just kind of a response to it was an, it was easier than fighting. Yeah, I mean, it's still fighting. It's sort of like a passive form of fighting, but it was easier than, you know, resisting and physically getting into confrontations. We're just we're just going to move. We're just going to take our ball and go home kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and that that's. I mean, honestly, that's part of the reason I asked the question is because I, that needs to be addressed. This wasn't just, a, uh, you know, like you, like you said, this, this wasn't something that could have, you know, that, that there was no way to stop it. Yes, there was a lot we could have done. You know, we could have made things better for the people that were moving into the cities, you know. But instead, you know, like you said, we have this ingrained uh, just strain of, of racism that even still now in the Midwest, a yeah. lot of people don't want to acknowledge it, mm. you know. And um, but I mean, it was there, you know, and it, I wouldn't even say it's like a passive, uh, you know, thing. I, I think it was uh, it it was more of an aggressive thing just without throwing a punch. It's like, oh, well, there's black workers coming to work in the same plants that I work in. And because of that strain of racism, you know what? I don't want to live here anymore. I'm going to like you said, I'm going to take my my tax dollars. I'm going to go elsewhere. And then that plant, like, you, you know, in some instances, it's like, OK, well, we're going to follow our workers. You know, we'll just buy some land out there it's, and we'll do it's it. Very, and... It's very classic Midwest. Like, it is very passive aggressive. But when you dig beneath it, you find out that it is very aggressive. Aggressive. Yeah. And, and the, the ramifications of this are still seen to this day. You know, um, Milwaukee. You know, Milwaukee just won the NBA championship, the Milwaukee Bucks. And um, shortly after the championship, I was talking with a friend of mine about how Milwaukee to this day is an, is an incredibly unique place. On one hand, if you just look at the, the, the overall sort of statistical data for the city of Milwaukee, 
it's one of the more racially diverse cities in the Midwest. I think Milwaukee's population is like just under or over 60% white, about 35 or 40% African-American. And then there's a lot of other groups that live in the city, but it's a, it's a, it's a fairly, you know, diverse city and just, again, gross statistics if you look at it. But Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the country. You know, 40% of the city is African-American and they live in like two kind of densely clustered neighborhoods that kind of do, based on my understanding of the city, morph into more or less like downtown and immediate uptown kind of areas around downtown. So, I mean, the legacy of this is still very much apparent. I mean, anyone who lives in any of these cities knows like, you know, the, the community that you live in might be entirely white people. And then yeah. you think and you think that the city is like that. But then when you look up like anybody who's in the Midwest, look up the statistics of the city that you live in. I bet you you're going to be surprised to see how not white your city is. You know, the, the Midwest has still a real problem with segregation. And it's not necessarily um, in the in the same sort of codified way that we, we think of when we think of you know neighborhood segregation or, or, or just general segregation in, in American cities. A lot of it was done through things like homeowners associations, um, you know, even federal legislation about where you could or couldn't buy a home. You know, the home loaning association or what was it, home owners loaning corporation, uh, Fair Housing Act. I mean, it was legal to discriminate based on you know who was living in your neighborhood. I mean, for those of you who want more information, John Oliver actually just did a wonderful. Uh, piece on last week tonight about this this past week if you want to go watch that uh, he does a really good breakdown of of how this happened uh, across the whole country but the stuff he describes was pretty common in the midwest so i mean this the 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 implications of white flight in the 40s and 50s are still around whether it's in the economic impact that it had on the city whether it's in the segregation of the city to this day or whether it's in the work composition of the city. Because again, once it was pretty clear that you could save money moving your uh, your plant out of the city into the suburbs, well, if it's cheaper to move to the suburbs, maybe it's cheaper to move to another state or again, to an entirely different country. Yeah. As you know, we talked about, this is sort of like the, the era of the big unions in the Midwest, You know, the, the Teamsters, the AFL-CIO, specifically things like the UAW. As they get stronger and stronger, employers are like, well, why make $10 billion when we can make 13? Yeah. So, I, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, that, that's the kicker. Um, like, and I didn't even really think about it till you said that, right? Like we start seeing outsourcing and, and, and probably the mid seventies, I think you see drips and drabs of it. And in the late seventies, early eighties, that's when it kind of hits us all in the face with a shovel. Um, but yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, okay, well, I don't, I, it's ex too expensive to keep this thing open in, in Cleveland. We'll move to Lordstown. You know, mm -hmm. it's too expensive to keep this thing open in Milwaukee. We'll, we'll go 30 minutes outside the city. Um, and then it became, oh, well, 30 minutes outside the city. We can just <laughs> move it to, you know, wherever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this is, this is where we're going to get in the meat and potatoes of this entire episode, right? <sighs> we start seeing, I mean, even from the 60s on, okay? Mm -hmm. um, we start seeing great, uh, you know, I shouldn't say great. It's the beginning of a, the great kind of death of American industry. Like, yes, mm -hmm. we still we, we still make things, but nowhere near, nowhere near the amount we used to. No. Right. But why did this start to happen? 
that's a huge, huge question. Oh so, yeah, I knew I, mean, I knew it was a big ask. That's why I was like, you know what? I'm I'm gonna catch him with it. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lot of the stuff that we already just had, had hinted at, the it, it becomes it becomes cheaper uh, for for corporations to move their work for to move their facilities out uh, of the U.S. or even again at first specifically out of places where unionization is higher and wages are higher. Um, quick digression. If you want to see a really interesting history of like how this is happening, go and look at any um, like corporate records and look at like their advertising. That that on its own tells a really interesting history. So like if you look at the advertising for any of these companies in like the 50s and early 60s, it's a whole lot of like that classic 1950s, 60s suburbia lifestyle where it's just like Americana, just like on the nose, like yeah. a family with a car and a grill and a barbecue and a pool and a washing machine. Like it, it's very on the nose America, like right up on you. Then you get to the seventies and all of a sudden the ad starts to go, you know, literally and figuratively to other places. You know, um, you'll, you'll see, you'll start to see like, you know, we're the world's leading provider. Rather than America's biggest employer, it's we're now the world's biggest provider of. And you'll start to see pictures of like, you know, people in other countries using their products or people from other countries making the products. Like you'll actually see, you know, uh, pictures of like where their production facilities are expanding to and stuff. And so like you can actually see when they've already kind of made the choice that we're leaving. Yeah. And so, yeah, a, a fun little like separate history of that, if you want, is. Go look at like the, the magazines and like the quarterly documents for a lot of these big companies, and look at the uh, look at the marketing that they use. That can actually tell a pretty interesting story on its own. But to to the question of how this happened, I don't really even have a good answer to that myself because it's it's such a global question in nature. Because it's one thing if American capital wants to move. It's an entirely different thing if the overall geopolitical structure of the world allows for it to happen. So you start to see employers wanting to move and you start to see them having the ability to move. Now, there's a lot of things happening internationally that I can't really speak to on that. But domestically, there's a couple of things that you can look at. You can look at sort of never ending, well, Never ending makes it sound like a bad thing. You can look at the constant struggle for equality and rights in the country, you know, as as we move forward during this period, the civil rights movement, uh, women's rights, you know, even still to a different degree, uh, the labor movement, although it's starting to peter off, uh, the explosion of this new left. Um, moving was a political act away from the sort of leftward turn that a lot of these capitalists were seen in American politics and American society. And the government at this point was, depending on your perspective, too concerned with the sort of social, again, they would call it turmoil, but I would call it progress, the social progress that was taking place in the country with the, I would say, second worst international crisis of American foreign policy, the war in Vietnam. As that's taking place, that's just taking a lot of attention from the government. Now, it's not like they're completely looking the other way from what's happening internally, but so much of the federal uh, budget and so much of their attention is going towards what's going on in Vietnam, 
in the Cold War more broadly, depending on which point in you know, post-war we're looking at. But then, you know, from some of the other interviews, a lot of the effort that was domestic was focused on stopping a lot of this social progress that was going on. You know, attempts to get Dr. Dr. King to commit suicide or attempts to break up his marriage and, you know, uh, the war on the Black Panthers and the mass arrests of, of students and faculty at Berkeley and, and Wisconsin and places like that. And, you know, the, the American left was kind of splitting itself apart, unfortunately, and the government and people who were in support of those, those kinds of initiatives were all too quick to jump on it. So there's a, there's a perfect storm of domestic and international circumstances that make it possible for these companies to move. And then when you take into account the fact that America during this period was, you know, in this, this is not going to be overtly political, although I'm sure someone will make it, make it into an overtly political statement. Uh, the U.S. at this point has got a pretty heavy hand in destabilizing the, the regimes of a couple of different countries. Well, you know what happens when you destabilize a popularly elected government and put in one that's more favorable to you? All of a sudden you get contracts and it becomes easier for companies to move uh, move overseas or or not even overseas just move to move to other countries so there's there's a lot going on here uh which again this could be this could be an entire other episode in and of itself um but yeah there, there's a lot going on domestically and internationally the international stuff again i can't speak to quite as much though yeah i mean that's that's the thing we you know we do destabilize nations that's something that you know that's as american as apple pie that we we've we've done it for almost the entirety of our existence is you know we put our two cents in you know we we go in as a protector or we just completely overthrow the government right and like you said that brings in contracts which gives these companies the ability to i don't know set up a a shop and you know yeah let's just let's just pick one name out of the hat uh you know the uh, Dominican Republic, all right, because we had major, major mm -hmm. operations in the DR for a long time, right? Well, if you've got a similar operation in the United States where you're paying unionized labor, you know, and like you said, well, why, why make 10 when we can make 13? Okay, well, we're mm -hmm. going to shut down the American plant and we're going to go just move, shift everything to the DR. But see, this is what, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to bring up is that Reagan uh, made it very uh. easy, made it very, very easy for large corporations, because there were mm -hmm. some protections. I, I, I don't want to just, right. you know, get it twisted. And it, But there were some protections that did not allow American companies to entirely move everything away from the United States, right? No, and if, and if you look at a lot of these companies, their headquarters would stay, like, like the headquarters for a lot of these companies are in the cities where they're associated. Like the headquarters for Owens Corning in Owens, Illinois, I think is still in downtown Toledo. Yeah, you know, and Ford's. I think Ford's headquarters might still be, actually be in Detroit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Ford, GM, and whatever Chrysler is now. I can't, I can't keep up with all their name changes. Yeah, uh, I know. Um, you know, but they're still roughly in the area around Detroit. The HQs, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, Reagan made it easy for companies to essentially just leave their HQs behind, but move all other operations overseas, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think this is where we see that absolutely crippling effect on the Rust Belt, right? Yeah. Because what is that? Who does the headquarters employ? Not me, all right. Not, right. not, not the fabricator or you know the stamper, you know, or the or I don't know the proper term. So if there are steel workers out there or automotive workers or any kind of industrial workers out there that would like to yell at me, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I spent too long in the military and now I'm a book nerd. Okay, so forgive me. 
Um, but you know, like they don't hire those people at HQ. Right. You know, they don't. They don't hire regular workers at HQ. So I think this is when we really see kind of like that really devastating effect yeah. and that big change, um, where you know these cities are kind of left like, well, what do we do now? Right. And and this this sort of gets to we we keep coming back to it, and I'm I'm glad that we're this sort of like a, a synchronicity to this to this conversation. A lot of these cities in the in what we call the Rust Belt now, and I, I keep saying what we call the Rust Belt because I'm not a fan of the term, and we can talk about that at the end if you want. <laughs> the, the the places that we call the Rust Belt, what we would call the North, the, the term that popped up in my research a lot was the North American Manufacturing Belt. NAM yeah. is what uh, was what I always called it. In my research. <laughs> NAM. Mm. Um, if you look at these places, a lot of these cities were kind of new cities. Now they weren't company towns. Like, like we were talking about at the beginning where, you know, a small town, the company literally controlled the whole town. You might not have even been paid in cash. You might have been paid in a voucher for the grocery store the company owned. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about industrially controlled towns, towns that have a highly invested interest in one or two major economic sectors, whether it's a specific industry like rubber or glass or, uh, you know, production of like household appliances and whatnot, or if it's just sort of uh, specifically to a company. You know, there were other tire productors and or production facilities and other uh, tire companies in Akron, but BF Goodrich Goodyear was was the yeah. giant. You know, Good Goodrich was, was the big game in town. Um, as soon as those leave, or even if they just diminish, it's an exponential effect on the on the on the city. If 10% of, of Goodrich's employee, uh, employees are laid off, or if 10% of the company moves somewhere else, it doesn't have a one-to-one impact on the city. The impact on the city is catastrophic because not only are you taking away 10% of the people who work there, but now tax dollars are gone from the company leaving and the people who no longer have jobs. The places those people used to patronize are gone. And we've seen the relationship between these kinds of things, particularly during the COVID pandemic, smaller towns were decimated by the pandemic because a lot of the industries that were sustaining those communities were no longer really in place. But when you, when you look at these Midwestern cities, these, these, you know, former Rust Belt cities or what we would call Rust Belt cities, when you take away the one or two bigger industries that really sustain the city, there's not enough left over. So, you know, Ford Chrysler GM go kaput or um, Owens, Illinois or, or fiberglass goes kaput or, you know, Caterpillar leaves or whatever it is. There's other industries still around. There's obviously still a service industry. There's still, you know, some transportation industry, although transportation industry is going to be affected by how much is moving in and out of the city. Uh, but it's it's not enough to fall back on. And then when that continues to happen, it, it's one thing if it happens. And then maybe there's, you know, that normal cycle of American capitalism where, OK, well, it's bad for three years, but then for the next eight years, it's going to be good yeah. when it's bad and then it's bad again and then it's bad again and then it's bad again. It gets to a point where it no longer can actually fix itself. It will require dramatic outside intervention. And at the time when that dramatic outside intervention would have been most necessary, the late 70s and early 80s, 
the American government was no longer structured in such a way and ideologically constructed in such a way as well to do that. Yeah. I mean, and I, th that's, that's a good point. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, I know we, we like the, the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of ridiculousness because, I mean, the whole saying came around because it's impossible to I do. I was just going to say that that expression uh, is nonsense because it literally means to do something that's impossible. Yes. Lay down and try and pull yourself up by your shoes. It's not, you can't do it. Yes. So that's a nonsense bullshit expression <laughs> and we should, we should get rid of it, but go yes. on. Sorry. You know, but we, we like that kind of mindset, right? Like, you know, uh, well, private industry will come in and re revitalize a sector. No, it won't. I mean, that, that's the thing. What we're seeing is a lot of privatization um, and, and private sector money going into places and it only revitalizes the part that you know is adjacent to what they want to use it for right mm -hmm. like it's it's not the entire city um you know that does take uh you know a massive uh investment from state from local state and federal government to, to yeah. kind of to, to fix those things i mean and me i'm a northeast ohio guy uh, I wasn't alive when the river caught fire, but I was alive when the Cuyahoga and Lake Erie were so bad that unless you were on a boat, you couldn't go in the water. Yeah. Right? Like, I remember that. If you, like, fell off a raft or, or a boat and into that lake, you immediately had to go to, like, get scrubbed with a wire brush and, like, yeah. spray with bleach, right? Mm -hmm. But see, because of that kind of investment, you know, those restrictions have been lifted. Like Lake Erie and, and the Cuyahoga haven't been this clean in, in God knows how long, right? Yeah. And, and it's it, we've seen that in a lot of industrial cities, even in Pittsburgh, where there was mm -hmm. heavy water pollution, you know? And now we're seeing, no, 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 it's going to be private, you know, private sector money that keeps this going as the EPA gets cut and, and other investment, um, you know, engines for, from the federal, state, and local government are eliminated. It's like, well, here it goes again. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's like this cycle of, you know, giving hope and then immediately yanking it away to the people that are still living there. Well, and it's, it's not hard to see where that mentality comes from, because when you, when you look at it, like the, the real heyday of the American worker that we've been talking about, the, the and again, predominantly when we're talking about workers, unfortunately, we're talking about white male unionized workers, although there's an entire segment of the working class is still not being discussed in this particular part of the conversation, but the, the this hate this heyday, the two big entities that people did kind of not necessarily trust. I don't want to say trust, but the two industries or two segments that people would kind of fall back to to help them were their union, and sometimes the government. There was still kind of a belief that the government was going to side with the unions more often than not because for. For a couple of decades, even though the government wasn't really completely giving into the unions in the way that the unions probably would have hoped, they still were kind of keeping things at a relatively even keel. So by the time you get to Reagan and the sort of rise of, of neocons and, and even you know, neoliberalism, the two things that people were really able to turn to for help are gone now. Yeah. You no longer have a federal government that's invested in the workers. And you no longer have a viable union apparatus uh, for a variety of the reason, reasons. You know, union corruption was definitely a thing. Union people love to act like that wasn't the case. It was. Unfortunately, there was a lot of corruption. 
uh, a lot of the unions, you know, sort of just didn't plan for that future. They didn't really think that there was ever going to be an anti-union American future. I mean, that's one of the things that I found in, in my dissertation on Toledo. Uh, the unions kind of just thought that they were going to be there. Uh, they, they didn't really see far enough ahead to see what was on the horizon. And so when you take away those two big, like, trust fall kind of options, you can see why people would maybe want to think, well, private industry is going to come in yeah. and save us. Uh, it's not true. It's not accurate. Uh, but it's but it's it's the reality. And, and one of the things that you brought up that I want to point out, too, is when we say that the government at this period in the 80s, uh, late 70s and in the early 80s, wasn't in a position to help the workers. Let's be very, very clear. They were ideologically. They were not. The resources were definitely still there. Uh, Robert Reich, who I'm sure a lot of you probably follow on Twitter, he was the former Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. He's uh, a very, very smart man. He's written a couple of wonderful books on the economy. Uh, he has this point that he doesn't really like to say that there's such thing as deregulation. It's just who are you regulating? For a long time, the regulation was against uh, capital, against employers to keep them from exploiting the workers, from exploiting the government, you know, trying to keep things at a relatively equal keel. Uh, when you deregulate the banks, what you're really doing is regulating what regular people are able to do. When you deregulate, you know, public schools, you're regulating in favor of private schools. So you don't want to say that it was necessarily an era of deregulation because calling it deregulation makes it sound like the government was just going, well, hey, we're just going to let it go. We don't want to play sides. The reality is that they are actually regulating what's happening, but they're regulating it for certain yeah. people versus you know the people that they used to be in favor of so calling it deregulation makes it almost sound like the government didn't know what they were doing like it was one big oopsie daisy didn't know that was going to happen it was a very conscious effort and a very conscious plan to attack labor to attack you know uh, civil rights to attack women's rights to attack you know the new left that was all intentional and so when we when we talk about the government didn't have the means or the resources it did it didn't have the idea ideological means and the ideological resources. You know, your budget dictates your values. And when you fund certain programs against others, when you fund the military a hundred times over versus, you know, no money for education, no money for transportation, well, that reflects your values. So just a quick digression for everybody. When we talk about this period, the mechanisms and the capital were definitely there to keep this to you know, we were talking about who, well, who's going to fix it? Who can fix it? Is there anybody that can fix it? The government was actually in a position to fix it. It's not like the American federal government was hard up for cash. Yeah. Like, I mean, let's face it. I mean? At this point, Reagan is funding Star Wars, right? Yeah. Like he, he's trying to wrap the, the earth in a net of satellites. Great ringtone, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's trying to wrap the earth in a network of satellites to defeat Soviet nukes yeah. after he was told. Mr. President, we don't have the science to support that endeavor. He still funded it. So, I mean, like, come on. Yeah, right. yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's not act like the federal government didn't have the fiscal means to take care of these cities. Um, but but then know, what, ha what happens then is, so you have all these people in Toledo or Cleveland or Detroit or Milwaukee or whatever, their union has basically gone, especially after Reagan broke the, the air traffic control. Yeah. Like, that was... You know, there, there are a few Amer uh, instances in American history that you can really not understate. You really can't understate the significance of breaking the air traffic controller strike. 
that was really a, a, a critical juncture in a lot of parts of American history. Well, yeah, I mean, that was essentially the that was the saying the quiet part out loud for the first time. Yeah. The federal government hates the American worker. That's exactly what that says. <laughs> yeah. And that 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 ripples across the country that that doesn't just affect you know, the strikers at, at, for, for PATCO, that, that affects all of the workers across the country because I think it was pretty clear that like if the government was willing to do it once, they were willing to do it again. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if they were willing to break up the, the air traffic controllers, imagine if the Teamsters had tried to go on strike like they had in a couple of points in American history and they had been successful at those prior points. Imagine if the Teamsters in 1982 or three had said, we're going to go on strike and going to shut down all of the shipping in the Midwest. They would have broken that overnight. The, the oh federal God, government yeah. would have broken it overnight. It wouldn't have even had. They wouldn't have had a chance to distribute leaflets. Yeah, that, they're so, not even. They're not even getting chance to like get their signs prepped. You know, no, like, like <laughs> it, it would have. It would have never happened. And so the, the ripple effect of that really hits places like the Midwest, where unionized labor and the industries around that unionized labor were so important. So you have all of these people. Because that's another mistake that people tend to make when they're thinking about the Midwest is that it's empty. The populations of a lot of Midwestern cities have gone down. There's no doubt about it. But they haven't all gone to like, you know, Boca Raton and, you know, Phoenix. Like yeah. a lot of people from the Midwest have just moved to other parts of the Midwest. But you have these cities where the workforce has been reduced. The unionized workforce is almost gone. And you have public officials that are kind of unable to, to fill these gaps because like you pointed out so astutely, a lot of these problems weren't things that local governments can fix. You know, people like to, to slam on local government and to certain degrees, that's fair. But how is the city council of Toledo or Gary supposed to fix the economic problems facing that city? You know what I mean? Like they, they don't have the resources. They don't have the infrastructure to do it. They, they need the assistance of the state government, probably even the federal government. So there's really nobody, the, the one person, or I don't want to say person, the one entity that has the ability to kind of address the problem is the one that's just sitting there with his hands off going, hey man, free market. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's, it's easy to see how people from the area that we call the Rust Belt can turn to negativity, can turn to hoping for private capital to come in and save them and be anti-government. And it, when, when people are confused about how, how that took place, it's because they didn't experience it. You know what I mean? Like when you're from this area and whether it happened to you personally or it happened to your mom or your dad or your grandparents, you can see how people can shift their perspectives on how they view the government versus how they view private capital. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a great thing because like you know I, I i i tell everybody go watch believe land the you know the 30 for yeah. 30 documentary because um oh my gosh uh, uh hannah uh what you know the writer you know the, yeah. the main you know he's he's trying to tell you like we like my my dad my father my grandfather passed on our fandom and all this sports related pain down to me it's Ben Rob. That's who it was. Ben Rob. My my brain. I'm sorry, everybody. I got off of work at like ass early this morning. Uh, you know, it's it's the juices are finally flowing again. But when Ben Rob's talking about his son, you know, he's like, so I have to do the same thing. I have to pass all this pain and all this anguish and down to my kid as a Browns and now Cleveland Guardians and Cavaliers fan, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we do the same thing with 
you know, hey, you know, I used to have this great job. I went and worked in the mill when I was 18. I bought your grandmother's house and we had a great car, you know, and then, you know, my, my hours got cut, you know, and then it, you just, it just passes down. And, and yeah, like you said, maybe we, we didn't experience it firsthand, but my grandfather did. There's and an inherited, are, there's an yeah. inherited sadness and frustration when you're from this part of the country. You know, no, nostalgia is alive and well in the Midwest, you know. Uh, and and you can really see it when you when you drive through when you drive through the Midwest. You know, we we talked a couple of points in the in the in the episode here about how people will will look at the Midwest and they'll focus on that abandoned lot, or they'll focus on um, that one rusty building. <clears throat> when I was in Toledo as an undergraduate doing research for my undergraduate project, which actually ended up being part of my dissertation, I had to drive up to Detroit to the fabulous, and I should say fabulous. Walter Ruther Library at Wayne State University. Wonderful archive. Anyone interested in any part of Midwestern history, the history of Detroit and working class history, absolutely should go. It's exceptional. I'm driving up there from Toledo to Detroit for the first time. I'm on I-75 going north. About 20 minutes outside of, of Detroit, maybe 30 minutes, the landscape changes from just the space that exists between every city, that, that, that empty nothingness that occupies 90% of America. <laughs> you know, no matter what city you're driving to, somewhere on the interstate, you're going to hit a point in that drive where it's just like, all right, trees, mountains, deserts, flatness, nothingness. You know, like no matter, yeah. the topography might be different, but the, the vibe is the same. Then about 20 or 30 minutes outside of Detroit, you start to see a change. And all of a sudden, you start to see rail yards. And then you see junction stations and then you see a power station and then you start to see this ocean of production facilities. And then you start to get into Detroit proper and you see the city of Detroit. There's still 650,000 people living in Detroit, which people I don't think most people from like, I don't want to get into a Midwest versus the coast thing, but I don't <laughs> think people from the east and west coast realize there's still 600,000 people in the mm -hmm. proper part of Detroit. The metro area still has like a million some people, I think. But when you're driving through that and you see how empty parts of it are, because it is empty relative to what it used to be, relative to what it used to be. When you drive through and you see it and you think, my God, 60 years ago, this was full. Yeah. 60 years ago, this ocean of emptiness that I see was constantly alive with three shifts running 24 hours a day, nonstop production. All of these homes, all of these communities were full of people. There was constantly stuff going on. When you see that and you realize what that emptiness used to be occupied with, and then you understand you know, that there are still people living there, you can see why there's a sort of ingrained kind of sadness and nostalgia for the past in this part of the country because we're constantly surrounded by the past. You know, what, what people see is a rusty factory for us is, you know, a memento of what we used to have. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a place where I visited my grandfather on a lunch break, you know, it's, uh, right. you know, it's, it's things like that. I exactly know where you're coming from. So the, the, the past, you know, people talk about the past being alive in, in, in some of these bigger cities because of you know, like the great architecture or like these wonderful old neighborhoods and the culture that's there in the past is alive in the Midwest in a different way. The past is alive as a constant reminder of where we were and kind of what we had aimed to be. Um, and I think that that's why the, the, the Midwest is so misunderstood because 
people assume that the Midwest is just that emptiness and just that rust, which is why, again, I don't like the term rust belt uh, because it make the rust belt makes it sound like there's nothing there. It makes it sound like it's just, you know, uh, an heirloom that, you know, we take off the shelf every now and then and go, Oh yeah. Remember when that was that. And you know, that's, that's kind of it. It's, it's become sort of put on the mantelpiece in the, in the house, but there's a lot more to it than that. And when you, when you, the other problem that I have with Rust Belt, and it's not necessarily implicit in the term itself, but it's definitely implicit in the way that the term is used. Um, people too often want to act like some of the fault lies with the people in the Midwest. And there is no doubt, there is no doubt that there were problems at every level throughout this, you know, this history that we're talking about from the early part of the 1900s all the way to today. Everybody has a little bit of blame in this. On one hand, there's a little bit of, you know, like over-reliance on, oh, we just got screwed out and out by the man, whoever the man is, the government, private capital, whoever. We got screwed by the man. And on the other hand, there's a whole lot of like, oh, those poor Midwestern people, how sad for them. That's so terrible. They're just victims. Like the reality is somewhere in between. Like, yeah. A lot of the stuff, the really bad stuff that happened in terms of the economic collapse of the Midwest is attributable, 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 I don't know, depends on your pronunciation. Yeah, I mean, to, it's just one of those weird words, man. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> you, you, can, you can blame it. Here, we'll go to that. A lot of it can be blamed on capital and on the government. But we talked about it a couple of times, the, the sort of ingrained problems in this part of the country that people didn't want to address, that we pretend like didn't exist, the racism in the Midwest. You know, the Midwest was not, you know, it was not unheard of to see a, a major race riot take place, especially in the 19, late 1950s yeah. and 1960s. I mean, people always want to talk about how the race problems in the South are so bad or in parts of the West Coast. I mean, we, we have more than our fair share of problems here that we haven't addressed. So, I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around, but the, the problem that I have with the term Rust Belt is that it makes it sort of seem like it was almost inevitable. And it makes it seem like nothing has happened since then. And that, that second one is the, the real problem that I have when people use the term. The term might have been sort of appropriate when it first got into vogue, which was around 1990, 1991. Um, if you even just do a quick Google n-gram of the term rust belt, it doesn't really take off until about 1990, 1991, 1992, something like that. At that point, it might have been an appropriate term because in the early 90s, a lot of these former industrial cities weren't great. There were a lot of like rusted out factories and abandoned homes and, you know, parts of certain places did not look very good. There's no doubt about it. I'm going to annoy all of my fellow millennials out there. 1990 was 31-ish 30 years ago. That, that stings uh, a bit. I know I'm I, I was I was born in 80 I was born in the tail end of the 80s I'm 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 in my 30s now uh, that was 30 years ago and the problem with the Rust Belt is if it's a term from a specific point in time about a specific time and place and that term I don't think is really actually that applicable now like it would have probably been in 1990 that that's the real problem I have it's a historical term it, the term itself is historical. And it's describing a historical place and time. The term is 30 years old. The place and time is 30 to 50 years old. So there's problems with it that I have for a variety of reasons, but that's really the big one. Well, let's let's talk about 
why it shouldn't be called the Rust Belt anymore. We're seeing big bounce backs uh, in places like Detroit and Cleveland and Pittsburgh uh, and some of our other industrialized cities, right? We are seeing it. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, maybe it is centered around, still centered around a single industry. Like I know in Cleveland yeah. and, and you mentioned Pittsburgh, a lot of it's in the medical field, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're, we're seeing the, the spread of tech into some of these um, uh, former industrialized sites. And, and I'd like to think, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that, uh, you know, we're learning in hindsight from what happened in Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of the, the, you know, old Brooklyn neighborhoods becoming gentrified and, and getting so expensive that people had to move, right? Um, I'm going to tell you right now, I've seen in Cleveland where we have a lot of people coming back, uh, you know, or a lot of people coming in, um, but housing isn't going through the roof. You know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I'd like to think that the city council and the mayor of Cleveland and, and the governor of Ohio were like, listen, man, we can't have a Brooklyn here statewide. Uh, right. So, <laughs> you know, but like what, what are some of the other things that, you know, industries that are that are kind of pulling people back into these old industrialized cities and and, and kind of making them become these other these vibrant centers again? So the, the, the meds and eggs and, and, and tech thing is one of them, but I, I want to specifically touch on the eds part. One of the things that I do think makes the Midwest a, a pretty great place in general, but also a place for a lot of potential opportunity is the education. Now, every part of the country has, America has wonderful universities. The universities in this country definitely have their own problems, which we are not going to get into. But no, not, not mid- today. That's a whole other episode. The, the, <laughs> mid, the Midwest is home to some fantastic yes. public universities. Some of the best public universities in this country are in the Midwest. You look at the, you know, most of the Big Ten schools, you look at schools that are in the MAC and stuff like that. Hold on, before you go on, it's it's every Big Ten school except Maryland and Nebraska and Rutgers. So, well, no, well, no, I was talking about public schools. I think all of the Big Ten schools are public except for Northwestern. Northwestern, yes. Yeah. Okay, but even then, I'm going to yeah. challenge you SEC guys. You don't have one public school in the Association of American Universities. Not one. The one you have is Bandy. So... You know, <laughs> so, I mean, the, the Midwest has always been intellectually a very, very interesting place. You know, a lot, a lot of the big schools in the Midwest are uh, land grant institutions founded yeah. from the Morrell Act. So, I mean, there's a long history of the importance of education in the Midwest, not necessarily just elite evoca- uh, education, but education that's supposed to be accessible for everybody. So I think the ed- I think the university system in the Midwest are one of the things that make it an attractive place. Uh, now, again, every, every part of the country has, you know, a lot of universities and there are plenty of college towns in the, in the Southeast and the South Central and, and, and stuff like that. But uh, the, the Midwest, there's, there's a real opportunity there. And I think one of the other things that makes the Midwest such an attractive place for sort of reinvestment, and this is kind of an unfortunate reality we're, you know, having to be confronted with right now with climate change, uh, we have all the water, <laughs> like the, the you know the, the Midwest. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke, but like the Midwest is home to most of the fresh water in the United yeah. States. You know, the Great Lakes are right there. The Ohio River watershed, most of the Mississippi River is actually in the Midwest. Uh, the Missouri River. You know, there's a lot of fresh water 
which makes it a viable place for people. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Midwest was always viable was because of the massive uh, water infrastructure that was already available. I mean, most of the canals were built in the Midwest. There's all these huge rivers in the Midwest. There's the Great Lakes watershed in the Midwest. So I think that's actually one of the things that is bringing people back is that there's the natural resources that attracted people in the first place 150, 200 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, I love the Midwest. I don't care what anybody says. Like, I, I threw that picture of Cleveland. Uh, I wish I could remember the photographer's name, but I was like, I miss Cleveland. I love it. It's a beautiful city to me. You know, I've been to Pittsburgh. I've been to Detroit. And yeah, there are some places that, you know, are run down. But that's what happens when, I mean, what, Detroit's lost like 60% of its population since 1950, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? And, and like you said, there's still over half a million people in Detroit proper. You yeah. know, like I, I get it, but that should that that should tell everybody that should show everybody the scope of how wide open and spread out these cities were because of how many people lived there. I mean, yeah. if you lose over fifty percent of your population and you still have six hundred thousand people there, you had a lot of people there at one point. You know, I just I just looked it up to make sure that I had a, a, an even close to accurate number. Something in the neighborhood of six hundred and seventy thousand people still live in, in Detroit proper. Yeah, I mean, that's not getting into like the rather large metro area that is Detroit. So, I mean, there's not nothing here. And like almost in a weird kind of paradoxical, not not paradoxical, but I mean, a weird way. One of the things that does make it viable for people to start reinvesting back in the Midwest is because of the relative emptiness after people left. You know, people left. It's not like when people leave, they take their house with them. Yeah. You know, they don't take the the company that they worked at with them. All of that stuff is still here. Now, obviously, a lot of that needs to be repaired. But, like, there's room for people to come here. Yeah, you know, that's, I mean. That's why you're starting to see a lot of cities in the Midwest with upticks in population. Like, um, in our state of Ohio, Columbus. Columbus's population is growing pretty quickly. Columbus is bigger than, you know, I think Columbus is the second or third biggest city in the Midwest now. Yeah, I, th- I believe you're right, yeah. I, I mean, think and that, I think it is. I mean, and that's <clears throat> that's the crazy thing is like you're seeing like old buildings that used to hold like steel mills, um, you know, especially on like the lakefront in Cleveland that are being sold for cheap and turned into like, uh, you know, shopping centers, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that. And you're like, well, why are you building a shopping center there? Well, Cleveland Connecticut just built like a new campus here, you know, and it's just like, right. OK, well, you know, one feeds the other, you know, you know, it's kind of like that, that. That capitalist cycle. Um, but you know what? I, I, you know, I'm with Brad. Okay, the Midwest is an awesome place. Uh, stop talking shit about it. There are <laughs> there there are so many other places you could be talking shit about. Um, I'm looking at you, New England. Yeah, you kind of suck. Uh, but <laughs> I am I, not. I am not getting into a, a debate about that. I, I, I will say though, the 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 one the one thing about the Midwest that I think sort of underscores a lot of this conversation, whether we're talking about uh, the, the the Rust Belt point of the Midwest, which did exist, yes. the kind of post-Rust Belt era that we're in now, or any of the points in between or before that, that we've talked about thus far. One of the things that I think does make the Midwest an, an attractive place for people is that it is a place where if, like, it, it is a place where you can actually make it if you want to, if you want to. Like, so many people, and I, I have a ton of friends who who have done this, and I'm sure everyone listening has too that 
they graduate from college and they move to New York or LA because they're going to go make themselves. And then within a year, they realize I can't live there because it costs like $250,000 to live in a studio apartment the size of my bathroom here. I mean, <laughs> for, the, for the same price as your, you know, one bedroom, 12 story walk up apartment in Brooklyn, you can have like a two bedroom house in, in, in yeah. Cleveland. Like, I think the, the the opportunity that the Midwest affords, the real opportunity that it affords, uh, and the sort of working, not, I don't want to say working class ethos, but the the working kind of hardworking, no nonsense. Because I, I don't like blue collar, white collar. That That's also a sort of class argument I don't like get into. But the, there is a sort of ethos that like, hey, if you come here, if you're willing to work hard, you, you'll have a shot. Obviously, that's fraught with you know a whole lot of other baggage to unpack. But I think that the, the, there's an opportunity and a sense of promise that comes with being in the Midwest. Uh, and there's also a sense that we're kind of all in it together. Yeah. Like, you are never going to see New Yorkers rooting for Boston sports in anything, literally anything. Everybody I know in the Midwest, whether no matter where they were from, was rooting for Milwaukee to beat Phoenix in the NBA championship. <laughs> Every single Midwesterner that I know, Ohioans, Indianans, Illinois, Illinoisans, I can't remember what, what we call it, what the demonym for is for people from Illinois, but everybody I know from the Midwest was like, yeah, bucks and six, let's go, bucks and six. So like there, there is a sort of, you know, us against them kind of ethos that I think uh, kind of inspires people to want to, to do big things and great things here. So there is that. You know what? Maybe maybe we're not going to end on such a downer. I like that one. I think that's a good spot to end for today. Uh, All right. some, sometimes, you know, like especially, you know, on, on the pot, you know, on this past episodes, we've talked about, you know, mass killings and war crimes. And it's just like that's how the episode ends, because that's the end of the topic. And it's kind of like it's, it's like, oh, yeah, this kind of sucked. Uh, but I mean, that's a that's a good upbeat end to it. So, Bradley, is there anything that you want to plug, man? Any anything that you want to put out there? Um, nothing in the moment right now. Um, if you, my, my website, bradleyjsummer.com, I frequently post, uh, commentary, uh, historical and, and pop culture stuff on there. I actually just wrote a piece about a month ago, um, on the relationship between country music and sort of this Midwestern mentality that we were just talking about. If anyone's interested in that, uh, bradleyjsummer.com. It's a, it's a WordPress website, so it's not the fanciest thing in the world, but uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at History Brad. Uh, you can follow me on Medium at Bradley J. Summer. Uh, right now, I'm just working on uh, trying to turn part of my dissertation into an article and continuing to do some of my freelance writing for my blog and for Medium. So you can find me at any of those places. Uh, you can contact me via there. And uh, yeah, that's really all I got going on right now. Yeah, I, I highly recommend Brad as a follow on Twitter. Um, you're going to get some deep stuff, but there's a lot of funny shit, too, uh, <laughs> which which I appreciate. Uh, but yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at BeardedCynic473. Uh, the, the podcast uh, Twitter is at YDKHistoryPod. Um, and Brad, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thank hopefully you for having me. Oh, of course, man. Hopefully we can get you on for a bonus episode because I'm trying to I'm finally yeah. trying to actually get some bonus stuff for the Patreon so people will co you know, like actually sign up. Oh, speaking of which, if you like what I do here <laughs> and you there love you our guests, uh, go over to Patreon at patreon.com backslash you don't know history pod uh, and, and kick in five bucks and become a patron. 
And hopefully one day you'll be able to say, you know what? I was on the ground. I was one of the first <laughs> few patrons before Mac just took off. Um, there you go. Yeah. But Brad, again, thank you so much. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Um, you know, I keep telling you we're, we're, I'm trying to get back on track with the weekly episodes. Well, guess what, everybody? I've got a backlog now, which is great. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got a lot of interviews uh, packed on top of the other. So, yes, we're back on track, everybody. Thank you for bearing with me as I uh, adjust to it. Well, as I deal with adulting. Um, but, yeah, Brad, again, thank you so much for coming on. And everybody, thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.